This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Alexander Satin, who's an orthopedic spine surgeon at Medical City Frisco. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the innovative treatments, especially related to spine surgery. Dr. Satin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to speaking with you today. You know, before we get into the discussion of spine surgery, When patients come to you, what are some of the telltale signs that they may need spine surgery? That's a great question. I think first and foremost, it's important to note that the overwhelming majority of patients that see spine surgeons, and particularly my practice, don't ultimately have spine surgery in that they actually get better without it. Most patients that do ultimately have spine surgery are suffering from severe neurologic issues. So it could be pain, numbness, or weakness in their arms or legs, depending upon where the exact issue um, that they're experiencing is. Like I said, in most instances, we're able to treat patients without surgery, and the patients that do have surgery either have very severe problems or unfortunately don't get better during a course of non-surgical treatment. You know, when you are evaluating a patient, let's say that pain, that numbness, that weakness is there, when do you know it's time that you need to perform surgery? Sure. Yeah, it's not just about me uh, deciding. You know, my job is merely to, to make recommendations. I think when patients have either had prolonged symptoms or feel like their symptoms are getting worse, you know, it's really ultimately up to them to make that decision to proceed. Fortunately, most instances we consider to be elective surgery, so it's something that's not necessarily emergent and can be scheduled. And so, you know, I think that patients are suffering from those severe nerve symptoms. uh, and Those are the patients that we will often recommend surgery. So, someone has numbness or weakness and it's unfortunately not getting better, that's really a telltale sign for a spine surgeon that the patient may ultimately benefit from spine surgery. You know, I know each patient is different. There are different types of surgery. But in general, how would you rate the overall success rate of spine surgery? I think that's a great question as well. You know, spine surgery, unfortunately, at times does have a little bit of a complex reputation. I think well-indicated spine surgery is upwards of 90% safe and upwards of 90% effective for patients. And in reality, it's probably closer to the high 90s. Um, But, you know, just for full purposes, and obviously everybody is a little bit different, so certain surgery is a bit more complex than others, but well-indicated surgery is very safe and very effective. And so I think that's a key thing to differentiate, that if we're setting our, our patients up for success, dotting our I's, crossing our T's, appropriately working people up and really honing in on what is the cause of their symptoms, spine surgery can be, uh, like I said, very safe and very efficacious for patients. You know, the other thing is it's important to use what we know from 
our literature as a lot of aspects of spine surgery and different types of procedures have been rigorously studied and peer-reviewed journals, using that information to help educate our patients prior to surgery can help give them a better idea of what, you know, the, the risks that are associated as well as what the expected outcome is. What's considered a good outcome, we think of it kind of in a binary fashion, but that can mean very different things for different people based on what their prior level of function was and you know, what they consider to be success for them in their current stage of life. You know, that's a great answer. And again, I know each patient's different, and there are different types of spine surgery. But generally, so our listeners can understand this, so when can you walk again after spine surgery? That's a common question that we get from patients. And I think most patients are pleasantly surprised that in almost all instances, we are getting patients up and walking the same day of surgery. And so, you know, maybe a little bit different for someone who has surgery at 7 a.m. versus someone who finishes at 7 p.m. But we work with our hospital staff and our surgery center staff uh, to make sure that patients are mobilized on what we call post-op day zero, which is just a fancy way of saying the same day as surgery. So like I said, obviously there are exceptions for a variety of reasons, but virtually all of our patients uh, walk on the day of surgery. You know, along those same lines, generally, how much bed rest is required after surgery? Really minimal bed rest is almost something that we will never utilize in this day and age. We've really worked to get these rapid recovery protocols, and that's obviously something that we are firm believers in at Medical City Frisco because the data has shown that patients do better when they're up walking and moving and getting back to being mobile again. Bed rest is something that's very infrequently utilized, and if it is, it's temporary. Uh, Fortunately, that's not something that we deal with on a regular basis. What would you say is the most common spine surgery? So the two most common uh, spine surgeries that I perform are lumbar discectomies. When patients have a herniated disc that's pressing on a nerve uh, and that causes sciatica-type pain, and that pain may be associated with numbness and weakness. And then the other common surgery that we perform is a, is a neck operation where we also remove a herniated disc to relieve pressure either on the nerves into the arm or into the spinal cord. And so those are the two most common surgical treatments that I employ in my practice. And we utilize minimally invasive techniques to limit the damage to the tissues around the spine, and that really facilitates recovery, reduces pain, and gets people feeling better sooner. But, you know, the main things are people with arm pain or leg pain, which we call radiculopathy. I've heard a lot about spinal fusion. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so fusion surgery is designed to eliminate the motion between two segments of the spine. And so the segments are made up of the vertebral bodies and the discs. And so if you are fusing a a level in the spine, you're reducing that natural motion between, let's say, uh, two different lumbar vertebrae, which are the bones separated by the disc. And so fusion alludes to the fact that you're reducing that motion and ultimately eliminating it. Spinal fusion surgery is something that we 
do very routinely. But like I said earlier, it's all about the indications. And so for patients who either have spinal deformity, which is a curvature of the spine, or scoliosis, or instability, which is abnormal motion, or slip disc, those are patients that benefit from spinal fusion surgery. And in those instances in 2022, that is the best surgical treatment for those patients. Our topic, obviously, is spine surgery. We're talking with Dr. Alexander Satin, orthopedic spine surgeon at Medical City Frisco. If you know somebody or yourself needs spine surgery, this whole interview is on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, on all the major podcast players and YouTube. We'll ask Dr. Satin about pain management next. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. Boy, I'll tell you what, when your back hurts and you need surgery, you need surgery. Might be one of the most painful things that we can endure. We're talking to the guy who can help, Dr. Alexander Satin. He's an orthopedic spine surgeon at Medical City Frisco. And when people get spine surgery, one of the top questions is, will I be normal again? Steve? Generally, do patients get back to normal after surgery, or how would you assess patients post-surgery? You know, that's an interesting term, the word normal. We really do try to get patients back to their pre-symptomatic level of function. And so if you were using, or for example, if you were running marathons before, you know, that's obviously the goal to get you back to a high level of physical activity. You know, everybody has their own level of normal. Really the goal of any type of surgery is to get you back to what you consider normal. And while success is high, you have to sometimes temper your expectations based on your individual circumstances. But really the goal of surgery is to get people back to what they would consider normal for them. What are some of the treatment options other than surgery? So for over 90% of the patients that we see in the office as spine surgeons, surgery is not the answer. And the reason why it's not the answer is because we can get them better without it. And so we'll often start with a course of physical therapy or chiropractic care. And we will also add to that regimen different types of medications like anti-inflammatories, muscle relaxers, different types of medications to help with nerve pain. And so for a lot of these patients, their symptoms will get better with these medications and non-surgical treatment to the point where they feel like they have reached their, their normal. And so that's the great part of our job is that we're able to help people get back to normal without surgery. What would you say are some of the latest innovative treatments that you've seen related to spine disorders? You know, in in 2022, uh, some of the the most exciting technological advances, uh, which we have access to at Medical City Frisco, are in the form of spinal navigation and robotics, as well as endoscopic spine surgery. So navigation and robotics is an intraoperative guidance. And so the best analogy would be like using the GPS in your car or the complex instrumentation that pilots use to fly a plane. 
And so, of course, we drove when we had paper maps and they flew planes when they had very rudimentary instruments. But I think we could all agree for both of those examples, we very much prefer modern technology. And so that's where the navigation and robotics fit into current spine surgery. And so we utilize this technology to get a three-dimensional view of the individual patient's anatomy. And it allows us to place instrumentation like a pedicle screw to stabilize the spine safely and efficiently. And this really has been shown through numerous studies to be an improvement both in safety and radiation for patients undergoing spinal fusion surgery. I think it's important to note that the robot um, that we utilize is not doing the surgery. And so the surgeon is still performing the operation. Uh, The robot just gives us the safe trajectory that we're able to plan. And so we're able to plan the surgery ahead of time, which allows it to be a lot more efficient And then in regards to endoscopic spine surgery, it's analogous to arthroscopic shoulder and knee surgery. And so, you know, in this day and age, patients, if you have a a shoulder surgery or knee surgery, it's often done through very small incisions. And so spine surgery is, is, you know, excitingly moving in that direction as well. And so through a, uh, an incision less than one centimeter, we're able to insert a camera into the spine and remove bone and herniated discs that's pressing on nerves with very, very minimal soft tissue disruption. And that's something that's very exciting and is certainly growing in spine surgery. And we're, we're very lucky to have access to that here at Medical City Frisco. Dr. Satin, this is Thomas. What about pain management? How do you handle that? Yeah, so pain management is uh, a huge part of what we do from a non-surgical standpoint. And so we have a number of colleagues in our practice who are non-surgical specialists. And so we'll often start off with a course of, you know, like I said, physical therapy, chiropractic care, different medications. But for a very high percentage of our patients, we will offer them a consultation with a non-surgical specialist to perform injections. You know, if you're going to kind of look at pain management, literally, um, we really do avoid narcotic pain medication for non-surgical patients because that's often a temporary fix with very high risks associated with it. Um, But in regards to injections, um, a very high percentage of our patients are referred for injections. And in many cases, it's curative. And for many patients, you know, it's part of going through that treatment process before they ultimately do have surgery so that they feel like they've exhausted every non-surgical option. This is one of those MythBuster questions. Sure. Out here in non-medical, non-physician land, People say, well, once you've had a disc repaired or fused, that it just cascades right on up your back. Yeah, I think that's, you know, uh, to some degree true. And we call that adjacent segment degeneration. And that's something that we discuss extensively with patients before they undergo spine surgery. So they understand what their future may hold. You know, we do have a better understanding in this day and age that if we place people in optimal position. It does reduce the risk of that. And then for other patients, we may have a sense that that's going to occur, you know, regardless of of the surgery based on the current health of those adjacent levels or the levels next to it. But it's, it's all about educating your patients 
That way they understand these things. But by no means is every spine surgery a prelude to additional. I think that's definitely an oversimplification. But there are instances where we know that having surgery is associated with a specific risk of needing future surgery or having future symptoms elsewhere in the spine. And that's just something that's really important to talk with your patients about before they have the procedure. So no, I I would say that in general, that's not a concern. And in instances where it is, it's an important part of that pre-surgical discussion with patients. What about uh, sports injuries or related, you know, even if it's later on? Yeah, so we we see a lot of patients, you know, who are like kind of weekend warriors, and we even see some adolescent patients who have injuries related to the spine. You know, in in most instances, those are, uh, you know, muscular injuries um, that do get better with time and and rest. And so for a lot of those patients, it's mostly just getting them on a good non-surgical treatment plan and giving their body time to heal and, and giving them some reassurance that they will get better. And then we were talking today about lower back, but I would imagine we could go up to the neck and shoulder area. Yeah. And so the, the patients with neck pain, you know, those are the people who will often get numbness or pain down their arms due to herniated discs. But neck pain is, is becoming even more common because of the postures associated with smartphones and, and computers. And a lot of people, myself included, don't put ourselves in a, a good position for our necks. Well, this has been fascinating, and I know you work at a wonderful facility at Medical City Frisco. You have all the latest technology. Do you have any final thoughts about taking care of our spine and spinal surgery? Sure. Uh, You know, that's a a great question, and uh, certainly preventative medicine is is a big component uh, of what we practice, and, you know, taking care of yourself, maintaining a healthy weight to the best of your ability, staying active, having healthy habits, and probably more importantly, avoiding unhealthy habits will give you you the best chance of maintaining your spine in a healthy way. I think it's important to note that if we're lucky enough to reach older age, some of these changes are inevitable, but it's important to note that we really treat people's symptoms and not just their x-rays. It's almost guaranteed that you're going to develop some arthritis in your back if, if you live long enough, but it's important to note that in many cases, it's asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. And, you know, in just closing, it's very understandable for a lot of patients to feel a lot of anxiety and stress about seeing uh, someone who has surgeon as part of their title And I think, like I said, one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, is if you're going to go see a spine surgeon, you're guaranteed to have surgery. And so, you know, having been a patient myself at different parts of my life, I can understand the the anxiety associated with going to a doctor or a surgeon. And I think, you know, perhaps, and I hope that we can maybe help people in that regard so that they understand that there's a very good chance that we can help you without surgery. And it's important to not delay seeking care if you're having symptoms that are limiting your mobility and quality of life. And we've been talking to Dr. Alexander Satin from Medical City Frisco about orthopedic spine surgery. Thank you for those great comments. And his entire interview is on our podcast and YouTube channel under The Human Side of Healthcare. There's a new study out that talks about walking and dementia. We'll talk about it next. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And we're going to talk about a topic that deals with how we can help diminish dementia risk. We're delighted we've got Dr. Ala Al-Habib with us, who's a neurologist at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano. Welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me. You know, before we really get into the details, can you explain to our listeners how you view as a professional the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Sure. Dementia is a broad umbrella term with Alzheimer's is considered a type or a cause of dementia. So dementia is the general term of basically mental decline and Alzheimer is a disease uh, with a particular symptoms. The symptoms of Alzheimer's may overlap with other type of dementia, but not necessarily have extreme similarities. You know, now that you've defined both, to help our listeners, can you give us a little information related to dementia? maybe if you have it locally or even nationally, about it? And does it affect one gender more than another gender? Uh, Locally, according to Alzheimer's Association, there is 400,000 people who are older than 65-year-old living with Alzheimer's in Texas. On the national scale, there is about 6.5 million people who are 65-year-old and older living in the United States with Alzheimer's in 2022. I would say 73% of those people are older than 75-year-old. And studies show that Alzheimer's affects women to a much greater extent than it does to men. So I would say also about two-thirds of people with Alzheimer living in the U.S. are women. And interestingly, two-thirds of the people who provide care for those with Alzheimer's are also women. You know, that's amazing. Do you know why it tends to affect women more than men? There are many reasons. I think women live longer than men, and for that, probably their exposure to have this condition, which typically affect older individuals, is maybe higher in females. You know, that certainly uh, makes sense. And we've kind of defined it, and I think our listeners kind of understand now better Alzheimer's and dementia. But a recent study said that walking can be beneficial. What leaps out at you regarding that study? Yes, it's a quite interesting study. And I think it's not a new idea that exercising does prevent and lower the risk for having dementia or Alzheimer's. So the backstory of this study is they had around 7,800 participants from aging uh, ranging between 40 to 79. 
and they all had rest accelerometer to track the number of steps they took in a day. So after gathering the data, they split the participants into two groups, those who walked less than 40 steps a minute and those who walked more than 40 steps a minute. Then seven years later, they compared the participants' walking habits to their dementia diagnosis. So they found that purposeful steps or exercises and in general lowered their risk for dementia. The more specific that they found also in this study that who walked more than 40 steps per minute lowered their risk of dementia by 57%. So it's a quite a huge percentage. You know, that's pretty interesting. And, you know, that study shows the benefits of walking. But I got to be honest, you just mentioned many people that have this problem are older. What if they can't walk very far? Yes, absolutely. So people who generally or routinely are walking and going longer distance is challenging sometimes. So even slower walkers and the study still displayed lower risk of dementia. The study included those who did not walk as intensely or less than 40 steps per minute a day. And it showed that they still had a lowered risk of dementia. It's probably around 25% reduction. You're listening to The Human Side of Healthcare, and we're talking with Dr. Ala Al-Habib from Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano about how walking can help with dementia. But there could be one problem. What if the individual is in a wheelchair? Are there suggestions to help reduce dementia? Yes, absolutely. There are many other ways to lower dementia besides walking. Just the act of helping circulate your blood through your body and heart shown to lower the chances for dementia. So I would say other types of exercises, probably like swimming or uh, maintaining healthy diet, good lifestyle overall, refraining from unhealthy habits like smoking and alcohol cessation or just moderation, all these can help individuals to prevent dementia. So younger people should also practice good health habits that you mentioned to help prevent the onset of dementia. Would you agree? Absolutely. And as we discussed earlier, that staying active and exercising is one of the best ways to prevent dementia. So it's really not waiting for us to be in our 60s or 70s to acquire these habits because these are habits. And if you don't do it earlier, you probably will not do it when you are really sick or having other conditions. You know, that's great advice. You know, you mentioned in one of your answers smoking, and we all know smoking from a health point of view, you shouldn't do. I mean, you could talk to a cardiologist, you can talk to any physician that treats any kind of respiratory problem. But are you saying also that smoking can accelerate neurological impairment? Yes, absolutely. Smoking can increase your risk for having strokes and, as you said, heart attacks. It also can be very toxic to your uh, neurons in the brain. You know, when you think in terms of Alzheimer's or dementia, 
Did genetics come into play? Does it tend to run in families? I think it can play a part on the increasing the risk for someone developing dementia who has that family history. But, you know, remember, genetic is just one factor among many of others that are mainly preventative um, as compared to uh, genetic when we really can't change much so far. Let's assume that an individual comes to see you and they've done everything they can to diminish the risk of Alzheimer's or dementia, but as you see them and treat them, you clearly give them that diagnosis. What are some of the treatments that are available to patients? Dementia and Alzheimer has been a very slow field in developing, you know, medications specifically to prevent it. But there are certain medications that we use to help slowing or it helps us from day to day memory changes. So there are few options that we have there and every individual is just different from the other. We usually start with a very low doses and uh, escalate it as tolerated by the patient as, and as much as they can see some benefits. You know, you've mentioned some of the current treatments and medications, but as you look to the horizon, do you see future treatments that give hope for people with Alzheimer's or dementia? Yes, there are some hopes. There is probably only one FDA-approved medicine to hopefully prevent the progression of Alzheimer's disease. The use for this medicine has been still not very popular just because there are still phases going on on that trial and also because it has potential serious side effects. However, I do see that there is some potentials coming up. What is the best advice you can give our listeners, whether they are affected by dementia or not, regarding how they look to the future and deal with the potential of dementia? So my advice to all my patients is really, even if you don't have the genetic risk factor, even if you are not at the age that you will start noticing um, Alzheimer or dementia, there are really few things that are very effective and hopefully will prevent it from happening or will delay it. Number one, I would say don't smoke. Second, stay at a healthy weight. Get plenty of exercises. Eat healthy food and manage your health problems. Specifically, I would say chronic conditions like, you know, hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol. And then stay mentally alert by learning new hobbies, reading, solving crossword, puzzles. Stay socially attached, attend some community activity, support a group. Avoid being isolated. And probably we started to see more patients after the pandemic because of the isolation effect. So depression and anxiety, all these can mimic dementia or can, you know, worsen the dementia too. And Dr. Ala Al-Habib from Texas Health Presbyterian Plano will be back in the next segment to tell us more from this exciting study on how to help our elderly with dementia. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. Did you know that walking could help offset the effects of dementia? This is an exciting new study, and we're talking with Dr. Ala Al-Habib, a neurologist at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano, about how we can better help those with dementia. You know, it's an interesting point that you brought up about isolation. So especially as you begin to mature and get up in years, it's important to stay involved. You even mentioned crossword puzzles. So things that stimulate your mind on a routine basis. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. A lot of people think that dementia and Alzheimer is a normal as we get older. And what I want to make sure that people know that this is a disease and we should not say that this is a normal thing for older people to be this way because if we consider it a disease then we will think about how to treat it how to prevent it from progressing more and how to help this individual get better and also the caregivers so you've done an excellent job of answering my questions and i know thomas has probably got some thomas thank you steve dr al-habib do you have any idea what specifically about walking might make the difference that's being affected here? I think because in this study, they um, basically monitor that. But overall, I do believe that exercise in general will be very helpful. It's just the same way that exercises are good for the heart. The reason usually behind it is that exercises will demand the heart to push more blood. And then in order for the heart to work during exercises is to really open more collateral blood flow, means to open these small capillaries and smaller blood vessels to supply the heart the same way with the brain. So as much as we exercise, um, the blood vessels will open up. And in case of, let's say, a stroke, or in case of decreased blood flow to the heart, these other collateral will deliver the blood to the heart and the brain and will help avoiding catastrophic events. So it's about the oxygen flow and the oxygenation as well to the brain. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Great. What a good explanation. I feel good because I like to walk a lot. So uh, it feels good Good. to come into one of these conversations and realize, hey, I'm doing something right. That's great. You mentioned the pace, 40 steps per minute. What about for how long should somebody, I, I guess it's how long can you go, but is there a minimum kind of time frame? I don't think there is a minimum. Uh, the reason they pick the 40 step an hour, the quicker we walk, the more likely that the blood flow from the heart and then we, co- we make the heart pump more as compared to when we are just, you know, walking at home. Just the same way with weight loss, that probably it's not very effective. Yet any kind of activity is very helpful. Slower walkers are better than people who are sitting. Absolutely. Every day, right? Every day. One of the things that's kind of 
I guess, one of the topics of discussion that's vogue these days is exposures to various elements, chemicals, atmospheric things, exhaust if you sit out on the freeway a lot. Are there any correlations in medical science that might connect exposure to whatever to dementia? I'm sure there are a lot of environmental factors that can cause dementia in general. And again, we are talking about, you know, multiple conditions, not just Alzheimer's disease here. For example, people with Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonism, where they can be related to toxin exposure like Agent Orange or, you know, other chemicals. So there are some contributing factors, but I would say we don't have exact study uh, to confirm that. Wow. You mentioned Parkinson's and Agent Orange. My dad had Parkinson's. And in the 1960s, he was exposed directly to a derivative of Agent Orange. Wow, I never had connected that one. We had figured a few other things, but I'd never connected that one. Amazing. Thank you. That's a, I was like, okay, there it is. That was, or at least one. (laughs) And it probably is more than one thing. And it's actually very common for veterans to have a service connection for Parkinson's and Agent Orange. You and Steve talked about diet, weight control, weight loss. Obesity is a pandemic. There's no question about it. It is huge. As we get bigger, what's that going to do to this issue going forward? It's very likely that, uh, you know, obese people will have more sedentary uh, lifestyle and probably they will, uh, number one, will not exercise enough uh, because of the weight and maybe because of the body ache they may develop. Also, there is, uh, you know, it can affect the breathing. It can cause sleep apnea. So multiple conditions that can be linked together. And at the end, it can affect the heart and the brain in a negative way. However, you know, uh, obesity is, as you said, is a condition and a disease that has multiple treatment options. One of them is, or the main thing is really to adapt a normal or healthier lifestyle and adding walking, uh, not necessarily strenuous exercises, but just walking can help as well. So the message, the takeaway from this conversation is, folks, Get out there and get moving. Doctor's orders, right? (laughs) (laughs) Correct. And even in those Dallas hot summers, get up early and get out there before it gets hot. You got plenty of time in the morning. Yes, absolutely. It's a beautiful weather these days, so it's probably a good idea to go out and walk. But there are no excuses, so you can still use the treadmill or just walk around the house up and down the stairs. Find a place. That's great. That is great. You can always find a place. Thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, I do have one final question, Dr. Alabib, if you don't mind. You mentioned something that really struck me, and that is dementia is not normal. It's a disease. But let me ask you this. As people get older, and let's say they've got four or five grandkids, 
and the grandkids over and they go, come here, John. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I meant Ken. Uh, Doggone it. I can't remember where I put my car keys. When does that type of activity cross over and become a medical condition? That's a great question. And my perspective on this is that dementia or Alzheimer or cognitive decline is really some of multiple processes affecting the brain. So it's not just because I became forgetful or because we are mixing names, but it's multiple factors. Like once the family notice um, some changes on their loved ones. Um, probably it's a good idea to consult with their doctors or see a neurologist because there are many factors that can affect our memory and concentration and not necessarily that this will be dementia or Alzheimer. It's probably a good idea to make sure that this is not a vascular, nutritional, inflammatory, autoimmune, infectious, metabolic, pharmacologic. So a lot of factors that can make patients confused or having some memory issues and not necessarily dementia. We've been listening to Dr. Ala Al-Habib, a neurologist from Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Plano. Get out there and walk. All right, Steve, flu cases are up across North Texas, from what I understand. Yes, we are seeing more hospitalizations, more cases, and we're actually beginning to see an uptick in COVID. So everyone, please practice those good health habits. And join us next week on the Human Side of Healthcare.